Good morning, everyone. Very glad to see you here this morning. You all are so talkative this morning. It's so good. I know, apparently I'm not here. Hello. Hello. <laughs> I'm glad to see you all this morning. I love the energy. It's great. We are now getting close to Holy Week, and I want to just make sure that you all know that Palm Sunday is Sunday. So like in a few days is Palm Sunday. And we have a big guest joining us as our preacher. The presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, Michael Curry, is going to be here for our 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock services, and he is dynamite. And so we hope you will join us. Palm Sunday is always a big show anyway, and so come for the big show. You'll get a bigger show than normal, and it'll be great. And then we launch into Holy Week, and Holy Week we have services every day, but the special services really of Holy Week is called the Paschal Triduum. Paschal meaning the, the uh, resurrection. The Triduum, which is one of those great church words, is the Thursday, Friday, Saturday of Holy Week. So Thursday night, Monday, Thursday services, Good Friday, and then Holy Saturday. And Holy Saturday is an interesting day because it's really the darkness of Good Friday going all the way until the evening vigil service. The first Eucharist of Easter, the first service of Easter is actually the vigil service on Saturday night. Because remember, Easter, as we have learned in here, is tied to Passover. And Passover is a Jewish holiday that is part of the lunar calendar. And so just like Sabbath services for Jewish people begin in the evening after sundown, our first actual Easter service is after sundown, Saturday night, before Easter Sunday. Now, I will tell you, I love Easter Sunday. So for me, the flowers and the dresses and the hats and all the good stuff, I love it. And so even though that's kind of my favorite Easter moment, the Easter Vigil is extremely special. If you've never come to that service, I will tell you two things about it. First off, I keep it shorter than most vigil services because we do not baptize during the service. So here at St. Michael, one little secret is that I do baptisms the afternoon of Saturday, which sends liturgical people over the moon because technically we are not supposed to do that until the vigil service that evening. But at St. Michael, we will often baptize like two dozen babies all at once on Saturday. And so we'll have 300 people in the room to baptize those babies, just the families of the babies. And so we do a separate service where everyone can make noise and make a joyful noise to the Lord, all that good stuff. And nobody cares because everyone's got babies in the room. And so we do not do baptisms at the vigil service, which keeps it a little tighter. Now, it is still not one hour. So if you want to join us, prepare yourself for more like a 90 to 100 minute experience but it's a good one. And we hear the story of creation. We light the new fire that brings the light back into the world because of Jesus's resurrection. And it's, it's one of the most unique, most beautiful services that we do. And the second thing I was gonna tell you is because the resurrection is like the ultimate party. What really says party to you? Now I know you, you are Episcopalians. <laughs> and you're Dallasite, St. Michaelite Episcopalians. And so if you really want to have a party, what do you have? Champagne, my friends, yes. And so, because champagne is just sparkling wine, one time only each year, the wine at communion is actually champagne. And not only that, but I literally pop the cork of the bottle during the announcements, it's the most fun. And so, I think Jesus is resurrected, pop the cork. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. And I will tell you my favorite story, one of my favorite stories at St. Michael is that very first vigil service I did here and I explained this to the altar guild and they looked at me and they said, it's your church. And I was like, okay, so we're gonna do it. So Tony Briggle walks the bottle out to me at the announcements and I explain what we're gonna do and everyone's eyes get a little big. And I said, now who wants the cork? And I tell you what, it was like behind home plate at the Rangers game. I mean, those people jumped out of the pews. They were like, oh, oh, oh. And so I will tell you, I can get a cork at least three quarters of the way back in that church. And so it's popped and people catch it like a fly ball. It's the best. And in my soul, 
I really do think Jesus delights in all of that. So I'm very happy. So I hope you will join us. Palm Sunday, Holy Week services, that Triduum service is gorgeous. And if you've never done it, then if not this year, then some year, come and actually do Thursday, Friday, Saturday. All of the services on their own are really beautiful. If you can come to one, come to one. But I want all of you at least once to actually come Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, all three, because you get an experience that is so unique and it is really beautiful. And I know it's a time commitment, but once at least come and do those three services. They're really, really special. Okay, so that's my announcement for that. Well, no, I'm not done. So after Easter Sunday, we have a big birthday weekend. And so the following weekend, April 22nd, 3rd, and 4th, we are doing a lot of big stuff. You know, we've been celebrating our 75th anniversary, and so we're going to have the Michael musical on Friday night, the 22nd. If you have not been paying attention to this, I want you to know that there are well over 100 people who are both in the cast and the crew who have been working on this musical for more than a year. There are angel cutouts along the hallways with QR codes, you can get your tickets. We've had over a thousand tickets reserved for this thing. We're doing it at McFarland Auditorium at SMU. Everyone's invited, tickets are free, does not matter if you are a member of St. Michael. So anyone, if you wanna bring your friends, it's only an hour. So, you know, everything's good for an hour. Few things are good, <laughs> right? Few things are good for three hours. And so this is not that kind of musical. This is not the musical where you know, it hits intermission and you say, it's only intermission. You're not gonna feel that way. This is gonna be a nice tight hour, delightful, beyond belief. And I said in church a few weeks ago, when I agreed to do this, I knew it would be fun, but I did not know it would be good. And it's gonna be good. Um, we've been having these rehearsals, and especially in the last month or so, we'll finish a song and it's just, it's like electric, it's so fun. And so I hope you, will, we did a little patron party because there are a number of people who have given to help make this a free event. So we did one of the songs of the patron party. And when I tell you that the house exploded when we were done with the song, we, those of us who've been rehearsing for months were so taken aback because we've been doing this on our own and we kind of thought it was pretty good, but we hadn't seen it reaction yet from people who had not seen it. Man, it was so fun. So I hope you will come. That's April 22nd. Then Saturday morning, we kick off the farmer's market and Sunday morning, April 24th, is going to be a big birthday party. Inflatables and balloon artists and face painters and free lunch all in the west side of the campus, all free. So bring children and families and come spend the day with us. I have been told that the weather's gonna be perfect. So just come on. Okay, speaking of prophecy, we'll talk about that in a minute. Today, let's get into Bible study. We are still in Numbers, and we're going to be moving from Numbers chapters 9 through 12 today, and we're kind of getting going on the journey. And so let's have a prayer, and we will kick into Numbers chapter 9. Let us pray. God, we give you life. God, we give you thanks for joy. We give you thanks for friends. We give you thanks for the gift of love that surrounds us on all sides. We ask that you open us up this morning, make us vessels that we can be filled with your spirit and your presence, that we can reach out your arms of love into the world that needs it so much. Be with our friends who need your healing touch today. Comfort those who mourn or grieve the loss of loved ones and help us to be your witness to the way that you work in the world constantly. And all this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, there are four parts in today's lesson. First, we're going to talk about God's flexibility. I did not give this a lot of time last week. I ran out of time, and so we're going to just hit it for a couple minutes. Part two, the journey actually begins. The Israelites move away from Sinai and get on their journey. Number three, I'm going to call missing garlic. Um, but really, the people complain about the food not tasting good. And so that's number three. And then number four, we're going to talk about Miriam and Aaron and the problem of you know, Miriam being punished and Aaron not. So we're going to start with chapter 9, God's flexibility. Here we go. Chapter 9, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of, wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, let the Israelites keep the Passover at its appointed time. 
On the fourteenth day of this month, at twilight, you shall keep it at its appointed time. According to all its statutes and all its regulations, you shall keep it. So Moses told the Israelites that they should keep the Passover. They kept the Passover in the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight at the wilderness of Sinai. Just as the Lord commanded Moses, so the Israelites did. Now, there were certain people who were unclean through touching a corpse, so that they could not keep the Passover on that day. So they came to Moses and Aaron on that day, and they said to him, Although we are unclean through touching the corpse, why must we be kept from presenting the Lord's offering at its appointed time after the Israelites? Moses spoke to them, Wait, so that I may hear what the Lord will command concerning you. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the Israelites, saying, Any one of you or your descendants who is unclean through touching a corpse or is away on a journey shall still keep the Passover of the Lord. In the second month, on the fourteenth day, at twilight, they shall keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, and it goes on from there. So we'll pause. This is a very interesting passage. Up to now, God has been quite clear, and I might even say rigid, although that's a little harsh, but God's been very clear about what the people are to do. The Jews are supposed to follow particular rules in a particular way, and it's measured down to the day and the month. In this moment, we get a little bit of reality check. What is happening here is that Passover is the most important. Well, not the most important. Passover is one of the few most important days of the year. And so, yes, people are supposed to be offering sacrifices to God throughout the year, but that's sort of like akin to regular worship services. Passovers like Easter or Christmas, you want to be there. And so these good faithful people say to Moses, we want to be there. We want to do what we're supposed to do. We want to offer sacrifices to God, but we are unclean because we've touched a corpse. So what does that mean? That means that someone in their family died. They had to bury someone that they loved. This is very normal. We all understand how this feels. You can't lose a loved one just before Passover, bury them properly and respectfully, and then not be able to celebrate Passover. That seems contradictory. You're doing one good thing that keeps you from doing the other good thing. And so they come to Moses and they say, what should we do? And Moses goes and asks God, listens for what God would say, and the answer is, we'll do it next month. It's very interesting because now God is flexible. This is the first moment where essentially good people have come to ask God what to do if they can't quite follow the commandments just as they have been laid out. And God's response through Moses is essentially, you still need to do it, but if you wanna do it a different time, that's okay. I find that very interesting. It's really the whole point of that passage. So any questions or thoughts on that? <laughs> That's why last week I said God's flexible and we just kind of moved on. There's not a lot to say, but it's good to note that although God seems rigid, the Jewish people have, and they continue to do this by the way, they have thoughtfully discerned ways to be faithful that allow people to still live their life properly. Are you all familiar with the idea, a conservative Jewish idea of being in the wire? Is that a familiar idea to you? Okay, so most of the Jewish people you know are likely moderate reform Jews. Um, so like if you, Temple Emmanuel and you know, uh, Jewish groups like that around here, they would be considered, they're not Orthodox conservative Jews. So they're sort of like the Episcopalians of Jews. And so we are, if you think about conservative Orthodox Jews, there's a lot of, there are a lot of rules around Orthodox Judaism. And each Orthodox Jewish group has very specific rules about what they can and cannot do. And one of those rules that is pretty much universal with Orthodox Judaism is that there are certain things you can do when you are in worship on the Sabbath that you cannot do outside of worship on the Sabbath. So we are familiar with on the Sabbath, you cannot do work. But when you're actually in the synagogue worshiping, sometimes you have to carry something somewhere. 
or move a chair or whatever that is, right? They're just functional things. You kind of are helping people do worship. And so it's always been, not always been, it's pretty, it's been for most of history, the case that work regarding the worship on the Sabbath is kind of accepted. So if you got to move a chair or you've got to do a thing, then that, that's okay because you're essentially not working in general. You're doing something that helps people in worship. Okay. So if that's clear, we can begin to understand that people would start to ask very specific questions. Okay. So look in this chapel space. If you had to move a chair here in order to facilitate worship, that makes great sense. What if you had to move a chair in the narthex? That's not technically in the chapel, but gosh, it's really close, right? And so people would say, sure, like even moving chairs in the narthex, that's still working for worship. Okay, how about the hallway? Like if something happened in the bathroom and someone needed to clean something up in the bathroom, that still is reasonable, right? And so, yeah, that's probably reasonable. What if you were outside in the garden that's right outside the walls of the synagogue and you did something there, but it was still really for the synagogue, don't you think that's okay too? And so there is this slippery slope of going outside the literal sanctuary of worship to do work that's still kind of okay to do on the Sabbath. When you start going outside the building, you had to figure out where the safe space to do work is and where it is not. And so Orthodox communities began to literally take wire and wrap it around the campus of the synagogue. So when you were inside the wire, you could do certain things you could not do outside the wire. As you might imagine, that wire began to grow. And so there are some Orthodox communities where the wire extends beyond the physical campus of the synagogue to include other spaces outside the campus that are still kind of close, still kind of close, but might also include houses. Well, wouldn't it be nice if you lived in a house that was inside the wire because then you could do a little extra work at your house on the Sabbath that you couldn't do if you were outside the wire. So there are Orthodox communities around the country where there is a literal physical wire that goes around a neighborhood. And if you live in the wire, you get to do some stuff that you can't do outside the wire. The only reason I know this is because I rented a house in Memphis before I moved into the house where we lived prior to moving to Dallas that was in the wire. And I had no idea. I was seeing people do stuff on the Sabbath in the clothes and the locks and the hats and everything. I was like, what? what are they doing? They're not supposed to be able to do that stuff on the set. Oh, it's the wire. So two things. A, housing values are super solid in the wire because you always have someone who will buy your house. And two, I said A. So B, there are no Christmas lights in the wire. So we were very disappointed. Um, we had to leave the wire to see Christmas lights. Um, okay. Any questions about God's flexibility that then transfers to the Jewish flexibility? Yes, ma'am. Um, other question. How long are you unclean from the time you touch a body? How long are you unclean from the time you touch a body? What I will say, generally speaking, being unclean, it's a sliding scale. So depending on what you've done to become unclean, sometimes that's 24 hours, sometimes it's two days, sometimes it's seven days. When you touch blood and dead bodies, the norm is seven days. So if, you, if a loved one died and you buried them within a week of Passover, then you would be unclean at Passover. And by saying there is, a, there is an uncleanness that is normal life, like just in a sense, we sort of know this with, say, Catholic and Orthodox Christians, where there's a general sense of, I've done, I've just done wrong because I've lived in the world, and so I'm going to go confess the things I have done. I've argued, and I've been disrespectful, and I've, you know, that sort of stuff. Then there's unclean, that's a bigger deal. So if you, you know, if you kill a guy, then you're kind of unclean. So blood 
dead bodies, that sort of stuff, that makes you unclean for at least seven days, sometimes longer depending on the group or which passage of the Bible you read. Minimum seven days is the, is the best answer, which is one of the reasons why women were unclean most of the time. So menstruating women are in contact with blood, which means the entire time you're in contact with blood, you're unclean. But then once the blood stops, you've got seven days more that you are unclean because of the blood. And so for many women, that might mean more often than not, you're unclean. And that's very problematic. Now, obviously, at the beginning and the end of life, women do not have that issue. But for the big chunk in the middle, that's one of the reasons why men did all this stuff, is because women essentially were unclean most of the time. Childbirth and all the other things. So who made them unclean? God? Or the priests that wrote in Babylon? Oh, Pam. You know the answer to that question. <laughs> so... The question is, who made them unclean, God or the leaders? What's the answer? The leaders. Correct. So, well, gosh, there are, why would the leaders make people unclean? We discussed at the beginning that the clan of the Levites produced the priests, and it's actually one of three lines of the Levites. It's the Aaron's line, the Aaronic line, that really gives you the priests. The priests are the ones who would be trained and taught to be literate, and so they would then be the writers and the historians and the teachers. And so human nature is such that we always concern ourselves with ourselves most of the time. And so here we have men who have been in seats of authority, and most of the time people in authority don't opt to lessen their authority. That is just kind of human nature. Um, we have that you know, famous phrase, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, it's also a sliding scale. So the more power you get, the less power you wanna lose. We have the same issue <laughs> Am I going to say that? Um, well, so, well, whatever. I mean, it's, it's just true. We have... Mm, there, we, we, in the Episcopal Church, see that played out with our bishops. So we are structured as a church, very similarly to the U.S. government, in the sense that there are two houses that have to essentially agree about rules and whether rules should change. And so in the same way we've got representatives and senators that make up Congress, in the Episcopal Church, so this is the American Epi Anglican Church, we have two bodies, the House of Bishops, which are essentially like senators. Every diocese gets a bishop regardless of size. And then you've got the House of Deputies, which has a somewhat not, it's not, it's not good math, but in a somewhat of a way, each diocese has representation from all non-bishops, so that would be priests, deacons, laity, all kind of mixed together, to represent them in the House of Deputies. And when we have our convention every three years, we consider rules and other things, and both houses have to agree in order for things to be changed at a, at a particular level, whether that's majority or it's supermajority, that kind of stuff. It is almost certain that any proposal that could change or limit or lessen the authority of a bishop will fail. Why? Well, because why do bishops wish to do that? If they have authority and, I'll stop. If they have authority, then it makes human sense that people don't wish to release authority. Now, there's all kinds of good theological, faithful words that go around those decisions, but it just happens to be that Anytime there's any sort of desire to limit that authority, it just fails. I mean, it's amazing how that works. So I think that's kind of the same for everyone. 
there, there are countless papers and other things that have come out that say we should, for example, limit congressional um, time. So I'm, in every single model, it makes best sense that Congress people should have limited time in Congress because it was only ever supposed to be that a person who was a good person in their own town would leave and dutifully take a role in Congress for a little bit of time and then come back home. It was never meant to be one's complete full professional identity. But how, what do you think the likelihood is that Congress would ever set limits on zero? Because people don't give away their authority. And so it's just kind of, that's the way it works. Even faithful people are still human. Bob, did I see him? Oh, that's a good point. So, so we had a in our house, absolutely. Women not go. The idea of religious cleanliness is absolutely not limited to Jews. Um, every single major world religion has some concept of being clean or unclean. It might be that the clean and unclean is a bit more implied than it is a rigid rule, but in many, it's really a rule. And for some, it's symbolic. So if you've ever gone to visit a mosque, then men, before they go worship in a mosque, there is a little place where they wash their hands, they wash their face, they wash their feet. And are they literally washing in the bacterial sense? No, that's not really what it is. It's much more of a symbolic cleansing. Some may take it very seriously, but it was much about when people traveled in the ancient world, they got dusty. Um, it was just a dirty to travel and people were wearing sandals, their feet got dirty, all that sort of stuff. And so prior to going to worship, it was really, it was literally just get the dust and the dirt off of you. And then you're sort of clean in front of God. It's a reasonable thing. It's as if when I have conversations with people about, you know, what to wear to church, I've told my kids their whole lives, where would, you can always go to church however you are anytime, of course. But if you've got the time, put on something nice. Because it's not about whether God cares, God does not care. It's about you, in a sense, preparing yourself to do something special. It's really just an act of setting this aside as not just any other thing you do ever in your life. It does not matter what you wear, ever. But just like you would probably wear something a little nicer than normal to go to a wedding or a funeral or a birthday party, it's the same kind of thing. It's, it's a little special, so just take a minute and do something a little special because it sets your mind in the right place to be doing something separate from everything else in your life. And so the cleansing is, I think, rooted in a very helpful idea that this is something special. But when it becomes very rigid and people are excluded, that then becomes a problem. We still have some of this stuff too with Christian groups. Um, you ever go into a Catholic or Orthodox church, there's holy water. And now it's only, it's totally symbolic but the idea that you would dip your hand in holy water and bless yourself with that water is symbolically cleansing you to go in and worship. We don't happen to do that kind of stuff, um, but most religious groups will absolutely do that. And in some religious groups, like Bob said, it is more serious to cleanse than in other groups. Um, and sometimes that's also cultural and based on ancient practices like for example there are certain hands you would use to shake hands or to eat and other hands you do not and it has nothing to do with one hand theoretically being better than the other it had to do with one hand serving a an anatomical or biological purpose that then would make it unclean like literally and so then you just set up that, did anyone understand what I just said? Thank you, okay. So I got no response and I was like, are we, am I clear? Okay. 
So, you know, there, there's all that stuff. And sometimes it becomes symbolic when it no longer has a literal need. Okay, that's good enough. Any other thoughts or questions? All right, well, that thing that I thought would take very little time, I continue just to talk through it. Okay, let's go, verse nine and, I mean, chapters nine and 10, part two, the journey begins. So we're getting moving now. Let's look at chapter nine, verse 15, and then I'm gonna jump into the middle of chapter 10 and I will tell you when I jump. Chapter nine, verse 15. On the day the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the covenant, and from evening until morning it was over the tabernacle having the appearance of fire. It was always so. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, the Israelites would set out, and in the place where the cloud settled down, there the Israelites would camp. Now jump to chapter 10, verse 29. Chapter 10, 29. Moses said to Hobab, son of Ruel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, we are setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will treat you well, for the Lord has promised good to Israel. But he said to him, I will not go, but I will go back to my own land and to my kindred. Moses said, do not leave us, for we know where we should, for you know where we should camp in the wilderness and you will serve as eyes for us. Moreover, if you go with us, whatever good the Lord does for us, the same will do for you. So they set out from the Mount of the Lord three days journey with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord going before them three days journey to seek out a resting place for them. The cloud of the Lord being over them by day when they set out from the camp. Whenever the Ark set out, Moses would say, Arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered and your foes flee before you. And whenever it came to rest, he would say, Return, O Lord of the ten thousand thousands of Israel. And we'll pause there. Let's start out with identity. Today, if I were to ask you to identify yourself, almost certainly you would identify you as an individual who you are, what you do, what you've done, where you live, what you like, all that stuff. In the modern world, we often identify as an individual person, separated from, in, sometimes in healthy ways, from other people in our lives. In the ancient world, that would have never happened. People in the ancient world were always connected to at least their families, but typically it's tribes and clans and even nations. And so although we would say if someone asked us that, sure, we're, you know, Texan or we're Americans or something like that, or we're name your last name, that kind of stuff, we wouldn't start there. Almost certainly in the ancient world, people would always understand themselves from who their people are in that old Southern way of saying it. So Jesus of Nazareth, that's what his name would have been. So I, I always like to say um, his name, his last name was not Christ, um, which I think a lot of times people get confused of, right? Jesus Christ um, and like Mary Christ and Joseph Christ and all, it's, that's not it. Um, Christ is a theological term. Jesus of Nazareth, is absolutely how he would have been referred because those are his people. And so where is he? Who is he? He's not just Jesus. He's Jesus of Nazareth. So people now know where he's from. They kind of get an idea of his people, of his tribe, of his identity. In the ancient world, what we are seeing set up here is that Israel exists as this big mass of identity. We have obvious exceptions where God talks to individuals like Moses, but almost never does God talk to most people. Instead, God is talking to entire groups of people. The Israelites receive a message from God. The Israelites are told to go in a certain place. God is present with the Israelites. And so what we see here is that the cloud and the fire, the pillar of cloud and fire, is God's presence with the entire nation of Israel. When the, the pillar leaves, time to move. And when the pillar appears, time to camp. That is essentially how the Israelites are moving around. 
Israel's very attentive to what God is doing here. So they're watching. They're actually seeing something physical in front of them that tells them whether they should stay where they are or move somewhere new. That is important to note because for them, God is very much directing their path. If we fast forward to why that would be important, when is this being written? In the exile or post-exile. For the Jewish people then, believing that God is not only present in the cosmic sense, but is actually directing their steps is a great comfort. If you are not in control, you are being held captive, you are a servant or you are any of those things, it is so nice to think that God is not just with you like in your heart, but that God is actually going to direct you out one day. So yes, the way the story is told, God came and got them out of Egypt. When they were at Sinai and got all these rules, God then led them, not just said, go toward the promised land. God was much more specific than that. He was with them physically. And so wherever they go in the future, exile or whatever comes afterwards, the idea that God is actually guiding your steps is really important. However, we have an interesting little moment, a crack in this idea. Look at verse 31, chapter 10, 31. Moses is talking to his father-in-law. First off, what's the name of his father-in-law? Yeah, but you thought it was what? It was something else. It was totally something else. So did he get married again? Oh, no. Such a good idea. His father-in-law has three different names throughout Scripture. We know it as Jethro. I mean, that's, that's sort of the name we would probably pull out of our head because that's what it is in Exodus. Here, when the story's being told, it's Ruel. What? So, uh, we don't know, is the answer. Just a nice little nugget you can put in your pocket. Okay, so Moses is talking to his father-in-law, and Moses says, do not... First off, he says, come with us. We'd love for you to come with us. And his father-in-law says, eh, that's your stuff. So, he is not an Israelite. He's a Midianite. And so here the Israelites are, his son-in-law has been doing all this good stuff and talking to burning things and getting tablets and whatnot. And so then he's ready to go somewhere and he says, hey, come with us. And Ruel, Jethro, whomever, his father-in-law says, no, you go, you go with them. They're not my people. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to go home. Moses says in verse 31, do not leave us. For you know where we should camp in the wilderness, and you will serve as eyes for us. I thought God was telling them where to camp. Didn't we just hear all of the instructions about how you're going to have the pillar of cloud and fire, and when it goes, you will move, and you will go to where the pillar is? So why does Moses want him to help them figure out where to camp in the wilderness? Oh, that's a good answer. He doesn't have faith. I don't think that's really it. I, if we look at this textually critically, it absolutely could be Moses somehow revealing his lack of 100% trust in God. For sure it could be. I see this as being just a product of a lack of textual criticism the editor just missed this. And instead, you've got these stories being put together and written down, and somewhere along the line, Moses used the guidance of his father-in-law, who is from this place, to figure out how to get to the wilderness to Canaan. Theologically speaking, this whole other story had developed about God telling them where to go and how long to camp and the pillar of cloud and fire. And what I see here is this little crack where actually we can tell that the story has evolved. It is almost certain that there was no physical pillar of cloud and fire, 
but everyone believed God was present. And so the way they got through the wilderness is they actually had experts who lived in the wilderness help them through. That makes great sense. Well, fast forward centuries, and man, that story sounds a whole lot better if God was physically present to them. And I don't mean better in the sense that the Jews were somehow trying to dupe anyone. I think the priests were trying to build faith in the people. And so how much better is the story? How much more inspirational is this story to the people who want this hope than to tell them God was right there on the ground? pillars of cloud and fire. And everyone's like, wow, that is so good. And they really want to see it. They want God there. They want to see and sense God in that physical way too. And they'll hope for that. But did that actually happen literally? We get a little moment here where we would probably say, you know, that story got this big, right? That fish was that big but for very good reasons. We just get a chance to look back critically and put some good intellectual boundaries around how we read these kinds of stories. All right, any questions or thoughts on that? Okay, so the comment is, remember who the audience was, uneducated, more susceptible to fantasy? I think that's literally what you said? Yes. I'm pretty sure you just described most Americans. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I'm just telling you, it is, we should be careful to not put let me say this I think that affluence and structure and economic prosperity and education and theory can make us very confident in being very different than the people in the ancient world and I think it's a danger for us to presume that we are somehow above the basic human desires, fears, wants of ancient peoples because our world seems better. I think that what we have seen repeatedly over and over and over again in human history is all the affluence and education in the world cannot cure humanity of those basic fundamental problems and we which is why i think we still study this we don't study things like the old testament because we are living like them we study the old testament because we're still human like them and truths that have helped people live well for centuries and millennia are still truths that can help us live well now. And that's a, it's a, that's a critical and intellectual exercise, which is one of the reasons why a Bible study that we will do, say, in an Episcopal church is very different than a Bible study that could be done in other Christian churches. Because for many other Christian churches, the goal is not intellectual criticism. That's, that's not really it. And we actually more often than not, are looking with an intellectual critical eye to this. Now, that's not our goal, but we will spend most of our time doing that. But my hope is that in doing that, you will then take away something that will then help you in your own faith life. If all you do is look at Scripture intellectually, it's better than not ever looking at it. But I hope that the intellectual curiosity and criticism that we do in a situation like this, in a study like this, does not stop when you leave the room, but you let it kind of sink in and begin to form you as a faithful person too. It's just that most Christian groups would not go through the intellectual rigor 
they would just jump right into the faith formation. And the problem with that then is I think we miss the complexity of our humanity. Well, I shouldn't say that. We miss the universality of our humanity. All the fears and the problems and the conflict and the whining we're about to get to, there is nothing about that that is ancient. That is so very modern. That is so today. And we're seeing it play out over and over again. I mean, history repeats itself is a sad truth. Because most of the time, we cannot actually learn from the past. We want to, and I think we try to, and we might give it lip service, but we're still, I mean, we're still animals. I mean, fear is the motivator for us most of the time, even when we try to make it not that way. Most of the time when people get so far down into the pit of their own echo chamber and begin to see everything else as suspect, what is that but fear manifesting? Mm. Yeah, I'm done with that. Thank you. Okay. Any other thoughts? It does kind of sound like Sunday morning, doesn't it? I know. We'll do more of that. Okay. Section three. We're going to talk about my favorite thing, garlic. Okay. Let's look at chapter 11. And I'm actually going to read a little bit more than normal because I kind of find this funny. So chapter 11, verse 1. Now when the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, the Lord heard it and his anger was kindled. Then the fire of the Lord burned against them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. But the people cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire abated so that the place was called Tabera because the fire of the Lord burned against them. That word actually means burned up. Verse four, the rabble, the rabble, what a great word. The rabble among them had a strong craving. And the Israelites also wept again and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we used to eat in Egypt for nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its color was like the color of gum resin. Mmm. The people went around and gathered it, ground it in mills, or beat it in at mortars. Then they boiled it in pots and made cakes of it, and the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, all at the entrances of their tents. Then the Lord became very angry and Moses was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, why have you treated your servant so badly? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you would lay the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give birth to them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a suckling child? To the land that you promised an oath to their ancestors, where am I to get meat to give to all this people? And why come weeping to me and say, give us meat to eat? I am not able to carry all these people alone, for they are too heavy for me. If this is the way you are going to treat me, put me to death at once. If I have found favor in your sight and do not let me see my misery. Man, that's a bunch of whiny babies here. I love this. I think this is hilarious. And so the people, I can't even get over the way that they write this. It is, wait, where did it say this? Um, the Israelites wept. That's hilarious. And then it says, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families at all the entrances of their tents. I mean, can you, the, the way that they tell this, it's like people are literally like throwing dirt on themselves, like crying about onions and garlic, which to be fair, if you didn't have onions and garlic, nothing would taste quite as good, but they are having everything provided for them. And yet they still, the grass is greener, right? Remember the fish in Egypt as if, being a servant and a slave, yet being able to eat fish is better than being free and having to eat the manna. But gosh, humans are just so emotional and dramatic, and they are here with all the drama, whining again. But what's so funny is that Moses is then like, ah, and can you imagine like everyone's whining at him and it's like he flips around and he goes, God, would you just kill me? 
because these people, I mean, that's really what he says. So I think that's hilarious. And so I think that the commentary that we are reading alongside this, and I know most of you probably don't have this, actually says, has a really great section where it identifies some points that we can take away from this passage. Because it's funny, yes, but it's also so very much the way we still are. And so here are some of the ways, there are 12 points in the commentary. So I do not expect you would remember all these, but I'm just gonna kind of run down them and pause in between because there's so much truth that we can squeeze out of this section. So here's what the commentary says that we can learn about this section. Disappointments often come to the people of God, things you might have thought clashed with God's nature and God's promises. Disappointments. These disappointments often affect basic physical needs, such as health or having something good to eat. Third, taking too much notice of people on the edge of the community may lead the community astray. Ooh. Four, these troubles test the people of God, bringing to the surface who they really are. Five, they can make us look wistfully to the past and make us wish God had never taken hold of us. Six, the people of God are then inclined to complain to one another or to their leader or to no one in particular rather than to talk to God about their troubles. That is so right. Seven, the dissolution can then become contagious, hard to disassociate oneself from. Eight, God overhears, finds it annoying, and reacts by sending more trouble. That's kind of funny. Nine, the job of leaders is to plead with God on the people's behalf, not least when the people won't turn to God themselves. That's interesting. 10, the complaints often get the leaders down as they feel responsible for the people, as if they actually are responsible for their welfare and happiness. 11, it's okay for leaders to bring their complaints to God in the most confrontational terms rather than complaining to someone else as the people did, even if the leader's complaints actually imply that they are assuming they have more responsibility than they do. That kind of hits. 12, God responds to prayers and cries. I kind of love this list. There, every single one of those points I could talk about for a half hour because they're so complex. The idea that taking too much notice on the people of an edge of a community can lead the community astray, man, that, if that is not a church, I do not know what is. I don't know, I, every day at least once, if not multiple times, I have a moment where I clarify for people that just because one person complained about a thing does not mean we have to deal with that thing. In a church of thousands, of course someone's going to complain about something, but when one person complains and thousands others have not, if we take too much time focusing on the one, we are actually leading the rest astray. Man, that's, that, that's a hard word, I'm going to tell you, because we like to like people. We like to be liked by people. And I don't know how many times, here's my one story, and I can tell the story because the person actually moved out of Texas. Um, I was, this is probably like four years ago, um, but in the narthex receiving people saying hi after a service, and someone came up and said, I hated the way that the organist played something or other in the service. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, that hymn was terrible. And why would that have ever been chosen? And I said, I thought it was good. And she said, but I thought it was terrible. And I said, okay. And there was a pause. And she said, are you going to do it again? And I said, uh, yeah. <laughs> and she said, but why? And I said, well, you wouldn't want me to actually change our entire liturgical program because one person doesn't like something, would you? And her eyes got big and she had no response and she walked away. <laughs> and the next week she actually came back and she looked at me and she said, you know what? No, 
I don't think you should change something because one person doesn't like it. And she was like, sorry about that. That was good. And I thought, okay, there you go. Um, it is how natural though to assume this is my church. I didn't like that, change it. Totally human. And for us to be able to say with kindness, that's not how we do that, is that's the hard thing. Because it's easy to either respond to the anxiety or to ignore it, to kind of hold it, but still be thinking of the whole is complicated. And I usually don't do it well, which is why I remember that moment. <laughs> um, because I was like, I walked away and I thought, ha, huh, good for me. <laughs> um, that's not usually what I do. And so I was very proud of myself. Um, but you know, usually we don't do that that well. It really is something that is hard for us because we want very much for the person to feel seen or valued and all of that stuff. But when we're talking about a big group, that's difficult. Anyway, so we can talk about all of those things forever, ever, ever. Um, one more that I want to touch on, and then I think we're gonna have to ch save chapter 12 for another day. Continue, look in chapter 11, still in chapter 11, following the whole whining about everything, look at verse 24. Chapter 11, verse 24. Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. He gathered 70 elders of the people and placed them all around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do so again. Two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, son of Nun, the assistant of Moses, one of his chosen men said, my Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them and Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. I wanted to hit that little moment for two reasons. The first is we see the beginning of the establishment of a good governing structure. So the people are whining to Moses. Moses is totally overwhelmed. What in the world can I do? And God says, after God burned some stuff, God said, go recruit 70 elders. And so Moses goes and gets 70 elders. Their role will become essentially the people talking to the masses. And so we're now creating a little bit of a hierarchy. Moses is up here. Moses has these 70 leaders. And now the thousands of people who are out there who need stuff or want to complain about stuff, now go find their elder. Moses is no longer hearing all of the complaining. He's got 70 helpers to try and distill or filter some of the general complaints from the entire group of people. That's the first point. The second point is that when those 70 elders are chosen and God's spirit falls on them, they begin to prophesy. That word actually means to be in a prophetic trance. In other words, they are speaking in tongues. This is the speaking in tongues, one of the multiple places in scripture where we get this idea of being in a trance and speaking in tongues, which is what some Christian groups have pulled out of this. And what I love is Joshua's reaction. Now, who's Joshua? He's the number two, right? Moses is right-hand man. He's gonna take everyone in the promised land when Moses can't do it. Joshua's reaction is, my Lord, Moses, stop them. Joshua's like the original Episcopalian because he sees all the people speaking in tongues and he's like, wait a minute, we don't do that here. And so I just thought that was really hilarious. So good on Joshua. All right, we're gonna finish up today and then next week we're gonna go into chapter 12 with Miriam and Aaron. A reminder that we will meet next week even though it is Holy Week. So do come on in on Wednesday and make your plans. Palm Sunday is going to be fun. Easter the following Sunday, big birthday party the following Sunday. We've got a lot, so join us. We'd love to see you. Have a good week.